Hi, I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. The story I wrote is kind of about isolation, but also being a writer is a very isolating task in that you can be sitting in a room as a writer and, you know, with a whole lot of other people, but you need to be able to talk to other writers about what you do. And you don't get that much as a writer because you're usually working alone on your own. And things like Behind the Spine and Writer's Salon and things like that just allow me to nerd out with other writers. And I think that's important. You may remember in Series 3, I set you a challenge launching the Behind the Spine writing competition. Using just one of a handful of the many incredible lessons we've learned from our guests so far, I asked you to write a short story of no more than 1,000 words. I promised that the best two stories would be used as part of Series 4. And today, I'm delighted to be delivering on that promise. I'm incredibly grateful to everyone who entered. We've had submissions from all over the world. Thank you. Now, sit back and enjoy. First up is A Homecoming by Michelle Witten. You're looking good, Nautilus. Five minutes air at depth. Roger, Liberty. I'll take a last pass along the starboard. Great haul. Well done. The wreck's really breaking up. Uh, hello? I've seen something about him. Going in to take a look. Don't get cocky, Joe. Easy pickings. I'm going in. Negative, Nautilus. Four minutes at depth. Throttling forward. Left claw extending. Damn. Come on, Joe. Don't mess with us now. Rotating 45 degrees. Extending left claw. Got it. Nautilus, leave. That's an order. Roger, Liberty. Heading topside. See you in the bar. Great-grandfather Sinai's pocket watch was a parting gift from his father when Sinai and his wife left Minsk for America. Not long after learning Miriam was expecting, the couple decided to emigrate to the Promised Land. The anti-Jewish pogroms in Russia were getting worse. Miriam had cousins in New York. On April 10, 1912, the couple boarded the RMS Titanic in Southampton. Along with their luggage, they took five cases of furs, mink, and sable. Sinai was a fur trader. Ever industrious, he planned to grow his business while studying medicine. Long Island socialites wanted only the finest European fur. When an enormous iceberg struck the luxury liner just before midnight on April 14th, Sinai grabbed his wife's hand and they fled to main deck. Darling, get in a lifeboat, quickly! No, no, Sinai. Not without you. Women and children first. Women and children. You must go. Now. You and the little one must be safe. I'll find you on the shore. I promise. Now go! Go! 
For all the opulence of its gyms, Turkish baths, and Steinway pianos, the liner was equipped with only 20 lifeboats, half that needed for 2,000 passengers and crew. On April 15th, Sinai's frozen, lifeless body was pulled from the North Atlantic. Miriam was rescued. She was taken in by relatives. My grandfather, Isaac, was born at Christmas. For three years, Miriam, grief-stricken, wrote begging for her husband's belongings. One morning, they arrived, abandoned, on her doorstep. Sinai's pocketbook, his glasses. His pocket watch was presumed stolen or lost in the vast ocean. In June 2018, Grandfather Isaac read an article in the Times. Ruth, listen. Among items recently salvaged from the wreck by the RMS Liberty are a violin, a statue from the Guggenheim Suite, and a pocket watch believed to belong to passenger Sinai Cantor. The timepiece and other finds will be auctioned to fund marine research. The watch was suspended under dazzling lights in a large, clear glass case. Grandfather and I jostled with the crowd to get closer. Hebrew numerals circled the watch's front dial. Tears welled as I realized this watch face was a sight great-grandfather would have known so well. I noticed the watch's hands had stopped at 1.20 a.m. Perhaps when he plunged from the Titanic's deck into the freezing ocean. The watch's rear face, once silver, had corroded and worn to brass. I could see it was elaborately embossed with the regal figure of Moses, holding the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments defiantly aloft. Behind him flamed the burning bush of Mount Sinai. A photograph showed the watch's inner workings, fused with rust into an undisguisable mass. 12,000 feet below, for over a hundred years, rough currents, algae, and sand had left their mark. I wish my grandmother could see this. She never stopped loving him. I've heard about this watch at every family dinner since I was a girl. There, on the tablet, Ruth, do you see? Thou shalt worship no other god but me. Exodus 20, verse 3. Very good. This can't be auctioned. This must come to us now. They're returning artwork stolen by the Nazis to Jewish families. How is this different? The salvage company has rights to property from the wreck. It's grave robbing. One and a half thousand people died. At the auction, we watched bidding for Sinai's watch spiral way past estimate. Olivier, it's with you on the phone for $57,000. I see you, Lydia, on the floor at $57,250. Olivier, yes, it's with Olivier again at $57,000. Lydia, no. Ladies and gentlemen, that's $57,000 once, twice, and sold. Congratulations. The watch sold to an unidentified bidder. A museum? We wondered. A week later, I received a phone call from a Manhattan lawyer requesting a meeting. 
Grandpa and I attended her high-rise office, all polished silver and leather couches. Thank you for making time this morning. No doubt you're curious as to why you're here. My client, who wants to remain anonymous, wishes to bestow a gift. She placed a small brown box on the desk. I opened the box's hinged lid. Moses stared up, clasping the Ten Commandments. Under the lid was a small handwritten note. I handed it to Grandpa. He put on his spectacles and read. It's time Sinai Cantor finished his journey home. Shalom. A Homecoming, written by Michelle Witten and performed by Sarah Arger and Damian Lynch. Michelle drew inspiration from a lesson we've been taught by both mudlark extraordinaire Lara Maclem and Tristram Hunt, director of the V&A, that objects are powerful storytellers in their own right. I particularly related to that because I'm a frustrated slash hyper keen um, aspirant archaeologist, paleontologist and huge fangirl of Dr. Bethany Hughes and Alice Roberts. I have great life envy of their, their experience. So that great interest with objects, with history about which we've, we've shared um, informally too, really informed my focusing in on those two. And I have a very good friend of mine in London uh, who's a keen mudlarker and he's shared with me his experience and some of his very fascinating finds that he's found from the stretch of Thames that he visits. And I really respond to the idea of objects being, I use the word resonant, they are like portals or keys in, in time back to an earlier earlier place. And Tristram Hunt commented that objects don't lie. Uh, it's really the, the foreground and the background that we give to them in their presentation of the objects and the contextualization. For example, the statues of, of those people once, once venerated as great leaders in society, subsequently outed as being involved in, in the slave train what's our presentation of those persons, let's say, now, and then contrastingly in a hundred years' time. To the second point of your question, I looked at three things, context, object, and the auditory experience that I was wanting to create. First of all, context. I talked about my interest in archaeology. I thought, well, it would be great to discover something there was also the lesson in Behind the Spine, those episodes about an object having a history as distinct from the human history. So the object continues to have a life history, whether or not it is discovered or looked at by human beings. So what was going to be the resonant object? What was going to be the context of its discovery or, or its being. And I thought around, well, maybe it could be discovered in Egyptian dig or a Roman dig. And then late one night I was up watching television and I happened upon a documentary called Back to the Titanic, which was made in 2020 about one of the most recent scientific exhibitions to the Titanic. And it was fascinating and looked at the Titanic really as a unique experimental space for 
examining the life of organisms, microbiobial organisms, which are the sole things that inhabit at depth and have specifically adapted to, to eat metal at that depth. They are literally the only living things at that depth. And that the Titanic, ironically, is nowadays also a scientific laboratory on which they're able to design experiments to show them what are the effect of these bacteria at depth on metal, which is, is very unique. Michelle became fascinated by the many famous things that have been discovered from the Titanic and those which have been auctioned in more recent years. While looking online, she came across a violin that had been played by the sinking orchestra and also Sinai's watch. Sinai and Miriam Cantor, the more that I looked into their, their story, they were a young couple who emigrated from modern-day Belarusia, then Prussia, and this watch was a present from uh, Sinai's father, and it's such a beautiful piece of art in itself in that on the back you can still see clearly Moses with one of the tablets of the Ten Commandments and the burning bush in the background. And that said so much to me of Sinai's faith, of his family's faith, and the, the hopes that they were endowing Sinai and Miriam forward with as they uh, went to America. I have taken artistic license with some aspects of that story. For example, Miriam's pregnancy on board. That's one of the aspects of artistic license because I had to create an ongoing generational aspect if I were to bring it full circle round to today. And although Sinai tragically died in the sinking of the Titanic, it is absolutely true that Miriam was saved and went on to live with her relatives in New York. And after that time, sadly, we lose sight of, of her life. A very good friend of mine has a background also from that part of European Jewish culture, and she very helpfully gave me feedback on my use of Jewish language and uh, cultural context in a piece, which was greatly helpful. And then thinking about, thirdly, the auditory aspect, I find I'm quite at home with thinking about things from an auditory point of view as an actor myself. And then also I, I grew up listening to a lot of radio drama. My parents are big fans of radio drama. It was a common experience on a Sunday afternoon, sitting around as a family. My brother and I'd be playing on the carpet and we'd all be listening to an audio drama from the Australian Broadcasting Commission. And what different aspects of audio would be interesting to include? Well, first of all, going down to the Titanic, you've got the submersible and what goes on with the discussion between those people and the highly sophisticated submersibles that they have designed to exist at, at depth and those uh, still on the uh, on top side. And then the discovery of the piece what conversations there are amongst the family members and then being someone who's interested in art, I've spent more time stalking Sotheby's exhibitions than I should have, <laughs> though, um, and, and being able to pick up some of the parlance used by auctioneers there. 
I'm blown away by Michelle's considered response. All of those aspects come screaming through loud and clear in the final story. And it's nice to see Michelle putting into practice another lesson we've heard a lot about on this podcast of seeking advice when writing about a culture you aren't familiar with. Next up, we have a story from Damien Clark. This is a teacher's note. I race out the gate towards the park at the end of our street. My school backpack bumps side to side on my back. It is very annoying. I want to get there before my friends and all their noise and chaos. I need to read Miss Strickland's letter. I think it's about a merit certificate. At the park, I scramble onto the bough we call the sitting place. A big, flat-topped branch, not far off the ground. It is quiet here, and you can lock your leg around a little stump so you don't fall off. I drag my bag up and unzip the notes pocket. Dear Mrs Jones, frankly, I have once again reached my wit's end with Jack's behaviour. This morning, as the students were talking among themselves during group work, he shouted out my name. Shouted? He was so loud that all conversation in the class stopped. After a pause, he simply said, Sorry, miss, and went back to his work as if nothing had happened. Later, during PE, we had a circuit of activities. Students would move between them each time I blew my whistle. After each activity, Jack would run a full lap of the quadrangle before joining the end of the line. In itself, this behaviour was not entirely disruptive, but it was bizarre and directly undermined me in my instructions. Finally, this afternoon at the end of our music lesson, Jack seemed fixated on the melody we were playing, to the extent that the rest of the class was lined up at the door, ready to leave, while he was still sitting on the carpet, playing it on his glockenspiel. I remain conflicted about this behaviour. Jack does not seem a naturally defiant boy. He is utterly charming one-to-one, and he has nice friends. His ideas and input in class discussions range from clever to brilliant, and he has never interrupted quiet time or assembly. But these frequent outbursts during group activities are untenable. He cannot complete high school behaving like this. Yours sincerely, Valerie Strickland, Year 7 class leader. Not a merit certificate, then. By the time I'm out of the tree and running across the park, I can feel the edges of my mouth being dragged down, like there are fish hooks in there, pulling. Emotion is coming, and it's coming in hard. I need to get away before I lose it in front of everyone. The bottom drops out of me, finally, when I am sitting in the little gap between our rubbish bins and the fence. I start to shake and the tears come. (laughs) Mum finds me when she brings her little dog out the front to do a poo. She says it's okay to be sad and brushes her hand across my hair. She's doing it to see how I'll react 
I shake it off because I'm angry. Then I wish I hadn't. But it's too late. She gives me the dog and says to come in when I'm ready. My heart just died when I saw him sitting behind the bins, crying. I wanted to scoop him up in my arms, but my test pat told me he wanted to be alone for a while. The letter was no surprise to me, really. It's hardly the first I've had from a teacher, even if it's the first from this teacher. I had hoped he would grow out of it by high school, that the new environment might help him settle in without any preconceived notions from the teaching staff. I know he's different. I've been told to get him a diagnosis, but I just can't. I feel battered enough already, and I know it's going to be my fault. I failed to keep his dad around. I work too much. I should have warned him against my body when he was a baby. I fed him nuts too early. I didn't breastfeed him long enough. I feed him the wrong food all the time. I don't let him sleep enough. And now I'll be the single mum with a kid with a label. I just can't. Later, I'm cleaning up after dinner and I hear him on the sofa with his tablet, designing something for a 3D printer and talking to the dog. You're lucky you weren't at school this morning. Everyone was talking and their voices were bouncing around inside my head so I couldn't keep track of what was going on. I called out to Miss Strickland for help, but I got in trouble. He tweaks a few lines on his tablet, then starts again. P.E. was good. We had a vaulting horse and a basketball game, but I wanted more, so I ran a lap after each go. I got in trouble for not being in line, but it was worth it not to be jostled about and have the sun in my eyes all the time. The printer and its table start jostling from side to side as a little shape starts to form on its deck. I think, this is my moment. I sit down as he snuggles up to me. I ask about school today. Music was ace. We wrote a piece of music together and by the end I knew when every note was going to come and it felt like they were raining down around me like a force field. Hmm. And the letter? She asked about the letter. I thought she would, but she didn't mention it over dinner. Sometimes I feel like I don't know all the rules. Like I was away the day they explained some important stuff and everyone else is keeping it secret. Mum is quiet for a while. She looks away and taps her finger on her leg. Then she asks if I want to talk to someone who can help me understand the rules better. Like a rule coach. She smiles and says yes. A teacher's note written by Damien Clark and once again performed by Sarah Arger and Damien Lynch. Damien took inspiration from the lesson we've drew from our conversation with Kate Davies. Kate flips perspectives in her novel In at the Deep End to allow the reader to see things from the villain's perspective. So I wondered, why did Damien choose this lesson in particular? Well, firstly, I usually hate stories that are written from multiple points of view because once I've got through the first point of view, I'm like, well, I've got the facts now. Don't tell me more. I don't need this again. I'm bored. It can always be a bit tortured when people are doing that. And yet these are really earnest stories. And I just thought, oh, God, save me from that. But it wouldn't leave me alone. I wanted to do any other lesson but that one. 
but it just kept coming back into my head this idea of telling a story from different points of view and i thought well how do you make that interesting i thought okay you've got to make the points of view really different and then i thought actually i don't know why it was i think we were doing parent teacher nights that week or something but i thought okay we'll do this kid and you know the kid's autistic and he has a hard time understanding the world around him and that's a subject i find fascinating which is you know i've had some experience with and so i thought okay so we've got this kid and he's got this view of the world and he's excited and he's always excited he's a lovely kid i wanted to get that across he's the kind of kid that even if he's naughty the teachers still like him because he's actually delightful and so i thought the idea of this two-track thing of the teacher having one view and the kid having completely opposite view of what had happened or a completely different understanding of how the world works would create sufficient interest and then I thought, well, if you're going to have this kid and the teacher, you have to have the mother as well. Then I thought, well, autism is a fairly isolating thing. Autistic people feel quite profoundly, but they're kind of, they have difficulty relating to the world and that can cause great hurt for them. You know, if you hear Temple Grandin talking about being teased in the playground as a child, you know, she says, people accused me of not feeling anything, but she goes, God damn it, I felt it. I felt it when the kids were teasing me in the playground. And also you get autistic kids at schools who are very much loved by their, their classmates because they don't play games. You know, everyone knows where you stand with the autistic kid. And so I thought, okay, so this kid's got friends at school and, you know, there is little support network, but being autistic, he needs time alone just to get his thoughts in order and build an understanding and have some space to sort of process things. So that's where that scene of him being in the rushing to the park to read the letter and then rushing out of the park as fast as he can came from. I wanted it all to be him and just his story in his head and then just the teacher's story. And you can't do that without having the mum involved. And I thought, you know, the mother has, mothers of autistic children often have all sorts of stuff going on like, what did I do wrong? You know, or they're told they did something wrong, even though if they don't believe it in their heart. And of course, I love this kid more than life itself, but then like kids can be really annoying and it can be very frustrating being in that environment. And then I also loved the idea of the bond between the two of them. I have these great friends in Australia. They're the little boys, one of my daughter's classmates in Australia when she was at school there. And I get along with the mum really well. And when just before we left Australia, we had to move out of our place into a temporary flat while we were doing some stuff in the house. And we actually end up living upstairs from them, which is really nice. But one thing I've always observed with her and with other particularly single mothers with single sons or only sons is there's a lovely bond between them. There's a real tenderness between the boy and his mother. He, he wants to look after her as well as be looked after. And they have a really lovely closeness and they share lots of interests. Now, I remember driving my boat up, up Rushcutters Bay and finding these two sitting on the end of a wharf fishing together and she didn't know anything about fishing he didn't know anything about fishing but they were doing it together and that's what what counted and it was so endearing these two doing their thing i went and had a chat to them i just pulled up my boat and had a chat and then there's people on a massive motor cruiser right next to them this sort of you know five million dollar type massive luxury yacht invited them aboard because they said oh you'll probably get to fish better if you fish off the bow of the boat and just on the charm of these two people invited them of the you know of seeing this interaction between the mother and son they had them on the boat and gave them the sandwiches and the kid fished off the bow of the boat and it sort of it it's like it opens doors as many, as much as it closes doors so i wanted to put that in the story too so i had these ingredients and then i just kind of assembled them but then looking at it now so the kid 
The kid's name is Jack Jones, which of course is rhyming slang for alone. I made the mother Jackie Jones. I wanted this idea of it being them in their own little world, these people who are alone. And then the kid's autistic as well. So the whole thing's really a whole study of isolation, which I didn't realise until after I'd written it. So maybe I was feeling lonely that day. I don't know. But I always find it interesting. You put as much into a story as you can, like little details like that, and then you read it later and you realise that there's a whole lot of subconscious stuff going on underneath what you're doing. You thought you were clever. You know, I thought I was clever by naming him Jack Jones, and then I realised later on that actually... There's layers and layers of subconscious stuff in there that I hadn't picked up. That's really interesting. Just to jump in on that, because what you don't know, because you weren't involved in the work that I did with the actors, is that it was a conscious decision for us to record separately. So the actors did not oh, really? interact with each other. I asked them to record. So the female actor obviously plays mum and teacher, and the male actor plays Jack but they recorded their audio separately because I wanted to really bring out the theme of isolation. So it's really interesting that that's something that you picked up in your own story because it screams across, you know, when you read it as a, as a neutral. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad I achieved it. A massive thank you and, of course, huge congratulations to Michelle Witten and Damien Clark. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. If you enjoyed this special episode or found this competition to be a useful source of inspiration, please do get in touch. We'd love to do something like this again in the future. Send us an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. I find listening to Behind the Spine very thought-provoking, very stimulating, and I love that there are such a huge range of interviewees, and it really helps me to be able to see the world from the different perspectives that it offers and to inhabit those people's experiences and, and think about all, all different perspectives. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 